Good morning. Good to see you all. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Last week, Eric Tanis opened up the first half of this chapter for us, and we saw Adam and Eve uh, really just put their hand right in God's face, didn't they? And today what we're going to see is his judgment and grace to them in the wake of that great uh, and profound offense. So we'll be reading uh, beginning in verse 14 to the end of the chapter, Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Well, I am pretty sure that each one of you here remember your first premeditated act of rebellion. I'm not talking about the kind you um, uh, committed as a toddler, you know, when your mom said do this and you went ahead and did that. I'm talking about the kind that you committed as a um, a self-aware, socially conscious, free moral agent. And the funny thing about that brazen act is that in the moment it seemed so right, didn't it? It seemed so sensible. For me, that act occurred when I was in the sixth grade. Uh, I was and am terrible at math. Uh, Numbers devastate me. And uh, Miss Gregg would uh, um, uh, 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 collect our math assignments, and uh, she would grade them, and then she would return them to us with a slip of paper. And we were to take this slip of paper home and have our 
parents, one of our parents, sign it to prove that they were up on our homework and knew how we were doing in math. Well, on one occasion, I received a, a piece of homework back that was just terrible. I'd, I'd done a, a, a terrible job on this assignment. I was embarrassed. Both of my parents were teachers. I didn't want them to see it, and so they didn't. For days, for weeks. And all the while, Miss Gregg is asking me about this slip of paper. And it was probably after the umpteenth time that she asked me when I was going to hand this, this paper back in that it all became very clear to me that the perfect plan that would alleviate all of my problems. So I, I took that, that slip of paper and I went into my dad's study and I procured some document on which he had signed his name, maybe a a canceled check or something like that. I placed the slip of paper over his signature and I traced those letters. And I took the slip of paper to school. I handed it to Miss Gregg. And I got to tell you, friends, that brilliant plan was flawlessly executed. Miss Gregg was none the wiser. The weight of the world left my shoulders. The sun shone brighter. The birds sang sweeter. It was a great day. And not only that, shortly thereafter was spring break. We got in the car with family and friends. We went to Arizona, stopped at Calico on the way, played on the sand dunes, went to the Grand Canyon, had a great time. Came back with only one half of the second semester left until summer, but then came parent-teacher conferences. And friends, I never saw it coming. My mom came home, she unfolded the paper, slid it across the table. Did you sign that? And all of a sudden, those, those letters which looked so smooth as I was uh, tracing my dad's signature and, and handing that piece of paper over to Miss Gregg now appeared blatantly and sloppily forged. And my heart sank and my face flushed and I knew the game was over. Now, I wish I could say that it was all repaired back then and, and have not had a problem since. If sin was simply a habit, a little operant conditioning would probably have taken care of it, and uh, uh, what a nice life I'd have lived. But my commitment to violate God's word, and in this case, uh, Leviticus 19.11, you shall not lie, and your commitment to violate God's word comes from the very core of our being. It is... Uh, as it were, a part of our DNA that we inherited from our first parents. Zerichtanus said last week, that we are sinners is the easiest thing to prove. The most difficult thing is to admit it. And we will do anything to try and explain our misdeeds, our uh, sins away. When I was an undergraduate, I... Uh, uh, was fond of uh, engaging uh, pastors who were visiting campus, uh, whether to speak in chapel or, or, or some event. And I would, ask, I would ask them any one of a number of questions, but I would always ask them 
to that point in their ministry, what was the, the singular greatest lesson that they had learned. And uh, when I was a sophomore, a fellow by the name of Steve Brown came to campus. And I asked Pastor Brown about his singular, uh, greatest singular lesson in ministry. And without hesitating, he said that men and women are really as bad as the Bible says they are. I could still hear him saying that. The depth of our badness, though, is accentuated by the height of goodness from which Adam and Eve fell. As we saw in chapters 1 and 2, God is good. And because he's good, everything he created, uh, uh, creation, creatures, were all good and together very good. And God's word was intended to govern his creation in that very good state. But when Adam and Eve questioned God's word, when they viewed it as debatable rather than indubitable or definite, when they considered it an impediment to creating their own rules, making their own decisions, controlling their own fate, in short, being like God, well, then everything began to unravel. And it had to unravel because we saw back in chapter 2, words matter. And words especially matter to God. And that's why as we come to this passage, we see a couple of things, both of which comprise the main point of this passage. The first one, given the great height from which Adam and Eve fell, is um, uh, expected. But the second uh, point, also given the great height from which Adam and Eve fell, is unexpected. So, what do we see? Well, first, we see God responding to Adam and Eve with judgment. That's expected. And it's important to notice because, as I just said, words matter to God. What he says, he will do. In matters of justice, we can be certain that justice will be served. The um, game manufacturer, Hasbro, uh, conducted a, a survey of 2,000 persons who play their board game Monopoly. And uh, here's what they learned from that survey. Of the 10 most common arguments that occur while playing Monopoly, number one is people making up rules. So here's what they did. Uh, this past Christmas, so just, just a couple of months ago, Hasbro set up a hotline to mediate disputes. Because when it comes to right and wrong in the game of, game of Monopoly, your house rules don't matter. All that money you put in the middle of the board for taxes and penalties does not really go to the person who lands on free parking. <laughs> You'll pay for that sin. Or when your game piece lands right on the go square, you're not due an extra $200. Hasbro's official rules are the last word. And so it is in God's world. God's word is the last word in this world. Our house rules don't matter. Well, I see that the Bible says that, but God certainly could, could not have meant that. 
Well, I see that the Bible says that, but it's really not relevant to the 21st century. Well, I see that the Bible says that, but certainly it's not applicable to American culture. No, 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 no. God's word is the official word on life. Adam and Eve were not unfairly blindsided by what we will see. Rather, God was being true to himself by exacting and acting the judgment about which they were fairly warned. Second, God responds to Adam and Eve's sin, and this is the unexpected part, with grace. Here's something that it didn't occur to me until just within the last year or two. In human terms, Genesis 3 really should be the end of the Bible. I mean, God says, this is how we play the game. Adam and Eve said, no, this is how we play the game. At which point it should have been game over. But all we have to do is turn the page and see that it wasn't game over because all the way from the garden in Genesis 3 to the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, God casts wave upon wave upon wave of grace onto the shores of human history. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, there are seven waves of grace that wash over Adam and Eve. So God's judgment and his grace, they are uh, interwoven throughout this chapter, which is really a great picture of the Bible itself. But before we look at the word, uh, the Lord's response to uh, first the adversary and then the woman and, and then the man, what I'd like us to do is to understand the nature of God's judgment and the manner of his discipline enacted on Adam and Eve. We'll begin with, with the judgment which is not like the pagan gods that were popularly worshipped when Genesis rolled off the press. Gods that were supposed to be uh, capricious and arbitrary and random and impulsive. Rather, God's judgment in Genesis 3 is talionic. That is to say, it is fair. God's judgment is fair. His judgments correspond to each offense. Now, if any of you uh, have seen Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, my father-in-law was big on Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, You'll you'll recall in uh, Mikado, the Lord High Executioner, who lyrically desires that every punishment perfectly fit the crime. And so concerning billiard players, this is what he's saying, which I will not sing for you. But here it is. The billiard shark whom anyone catches, his doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell in a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stalls. On a cloth untrue with a twisted cue, an elliptical billiard balls. So it's not that the pool shark is denied his table or his cue stick or the pool balls, but rather they're damaged, they're distorted, they're difficult to use. And in the same way, that's what we see here in in Genesis 3. The serpent's craftiness 
is appropriately supplanted by humiliation. The woman's gift of life-giving is fairly subjected to multiplied pain. The man's joy in his work is judiciously replaced with toil. All this to say, God's judgments were thoughtfully meted out. Everyone got exactly what he or she deserved. And while the greatness of God's creation is still apparent, even after judgment, even after sin, it's more like a dilapidated ancient castle that bespeaks the glory of a former day. It's also helpful to notice here, along with this uh, uh, nature of God's judgment, that the manner of his discipline, um, the importance of which I was reminded of a week ago, Friday night, some of us here were in the membership class, Bonnie and Jim were there, Molly and Doris were there, maybe some of other, others of you were there. And we were reading all this stuff from the pages that make grace, grace. And we read these words out loud. Church discipline is one of the primary responsibilities of the church. And the ability to obey Christ's way of dealing with sin is only possible if believers are clearly part of and accountable to an identifiable local church. That is to say, Discipline is what makes church relevant. And Genesis chapter 3 is a clinic in God's discipline. For instance, notice what God doesn't do with Adam and Eve. After they sin, what he doesn't do is avoid them. He doesn't look the other way, he doesn't walk the other way. And when he finally does meet up with them, he doesn't deal with them at arm's length or in some impersonal fashion. Rather, what he does do is graciously and intentionally pursue Adam and Eve. He directly speaks to them. He gently questions them. He clearly corrects them. And for all of us here, this is very difficult to do. But it's loving. It's the loving thing to do. In fact, it's a sign of God's gracious love. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Proverbs 3, 12. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Hebrews 12, 6. A fellow with whom I used to work some years ago uh, told me a story about when, when he was an undergraduate and three buddies of his got into trouble. Two of them ended up in the discipline pipeline. The third one was able to escape it. And the reason he escaped it is because this coworker of mine back in the day lied for him. And all those years later, that still bothered him for two reasons. Number one, because he lied. But number two, because the guys who went through discipline actually came out the other end, better fellas for it. Well, the guy for whom he lied and was able to escape the discipline was still, even at the time he told me this story, living a an incalcitrant lifestyle. So if, if you feel like you're under God's discipline today, don't shirk it. Because it's really a sign of his gracious love for you. He's pursuing you. He wants a relationship. He wants a deeper relationship with you. 
Okay, well, let's take a look here uh, at these ones whom the Lord disciplines. We'll begin with the adversary. Uh, Three quick things right out of the box. First of all, in verse 14, while God graciously pursued and questioned Adam and Eve concerning their sin, no question is put to the adversary. Instead, and here's number two, the adversary is directly cursed. Adam and Eve, not cursed. The ground is cursed in verse 17, and the adversary is cursed here in verse 14. Third, we see in verse 15, because the adversary ruined the human race, God declares his, instru- uh, his destruction. And in this book of beginnings, which is what Genesis is, that's significant because it's the first expression of the gospel. Now notice something that I find very interesting. I don't think I'd ever seen this before in terms of God's first articulation of the gospel. It is not a promise given to Adam and Eve. The gospel was not a promise given to Adam and Eve. Rather, it was a declaration of destruction or a sentence passed down on the adversary that one day he would be crushed, his strongholds would be turned to dust, Isaiah 25, 12. His followers would share in his serpentine humiliation, Micah 7, 17. This is why God's people can face the adversary with confidence. It's, it's not as if uh, this uh, garden scene occurred and the Lord huddled with Adam and Eve and said, you know what, but I think you can take him. So go on out there and you give it a go and I'll be right behind you. No. In fact, as I was writing this portion in my mind, I envisioned God on the curb with his people, the adversary out in the middle of the street. The Lord steps off the curb, faces up to the adversary, takes his finger and punches him right in the sternum and says, you're done. Turns around, calls his people to follow him and continues on down the street. God has declared the adversary's destruction. He may be a loud barking dog, but he has no teeth. In ultimate sense, he is harmless. Well, that's God's word to the adversary, and uh, we'll get back to that actually in just a moment. But for now, uh, let's look at the woman. Interesting thing about the woman uh, that's unique to her as opposed to the adversary in Adam is that God doesn't level an express charge in her direction. In fact, she ends up playing a crucial role in God's plan to liberate humanity from the adversary. But it's not to say that she escapes the effects of the fall because as we see there in verse 16, God informs her that her pain in childbirth is going to be multiplied. So apparently it was extant to begin with, but it's now going to be multiplied, and that word for Eve's pain in childbirth is identical to the one that he uses for Adam's uh, pain in work, there in verse 17. So it's a pain of toil, it's a pain of, of sorrow, it's the pain of sweat. And in Eve's case, it, 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 it doesn't have just to do with childbirth. It actually begins, if, if you look a little closer at the verse, 
at conception, and it goes all the way through child-rearing. And Adam and Eve could bear testimony to this pain in raising Cain and Abel. My parents can bear testimony to raising yours truly, all the pain that I caused them. One of the great things about my daughters is they've treated me far better than I ever treated my parents. Then God speaks words to Eve that uh, are especially difficult for 21st century ears to understand, let alone just here. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What does that even mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that a husband has an honest right to mistreat his wife. He shall rule over you cannot be understood in extreme terms, just like pain in childbirth doesn't mean as much suffering as possible. So that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? Well, I think what it means is the mutual freedom upon which marriage is founded and expressed there in chapter 2, verse 25, uh, that's replaced by selfish struggle. In fact, the way this passage is put together makes it clear that the wife's desire for her husband is going to be set in direct opposition to his rule, just like in chapter 4, verse 7, where sin's desire for Cain is set in direct opposition to his rule over it. So in basic terms, verse 16 means that Eve, whom God created to supportively help her husband, is now tempted to control him. And Adam, whom God created to lovingly lead his wife, is now tempted to dominate her. And so what God created to be an interdependent team is now comprised of two independent agents constantly battling and striving with one another at one level or another. So that's God's word to the woman. Let's finally consider his word to the man here. And one, one thing about Adam at the front end of this chapter is he, he appears to be conspicuously absent in verses 1 through 7 when uh, his wife and the adversary are having their exchange. But that's not to say he wasn't present. He, he, he was there. And we know he was there because the adversary's temptation is framed in the second person plural. So when he is speaking to Eve, you know he's also speaking. Who else could be there? <laughs> it has to be Adam. So Adam's sin is really the sin of passivity, of not doing anything. Eve only knows about the garden and the prohibitions thereof from her husband. She wasn't around when God instructed Adam in those matters. Adam heard uh, those words directly from God. And so his, his passiveness is, uh, is what indicts him. What he should have done is boldly stepped up, rebuked the adversary, lovingly corrected his wife, and then pulled her right out of the situation. But he didn't. He was passive. And in doing that, a creation order is 
totally flipped onto its head. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have God creating man, out of whom comes woman, and then under whose care, that is both the woman and the man, the animals were placed. But here in Genesis chapter 3, it's the animal who is exercising authority over the woman who tempts the man with whom she attempts, that is the two of them together, to put God in subjection to them. So everything's turned on its head. The truly diabolical promise, by eating you will become like God, is fulfilled, but not with divinity, not becoming like God, but rather the source of Adam's food being cursed. And so this, this soil, which had once been so um, uh, uh, submissive to Adam, is now resistant to him. That which had uh, given to him in abundance is now yielding thorns and thistles. And the work that once brought pleasure now brought sweat and pain. And in the end, what did he get for it? Death. But not as any sort of relief, but as disaster. Well, now that any breath may be their last, Adam acknowledges the gift of life by naming his wife Eve. We see that in verse 20, mother of all the living. And then God clothes them. He, he clothes them in these durable animal skins to replace these flimsy leaves that they had used to cover themselves after they realized that they were naked. And Adam clearly recognized uh, these clothes, these skins, as the penalty for his sin because death had to occur for those clothes to be made. And then to prevent further temptation and ruin, God graciously orders Adam and Eve out of the garden. We see that in verse 23. But it appears that they didn't want to go. Uh, or, or they were going with their heels dug in, because when you get to verse 24, uh, we read that God had to drive them out. And then at, at the gate or the entrance to the garden, he stations these two cherubim or cherubim, mul multiple cherubs, sentinels, with a fiery sword to keep them from going back into the garden lest they eat from the tree of life and end up perpetuating their sinful state forever and ever. So at the end of chapter 3, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what was Adam and Eve's hope? What was their hope? What's our hope as ones now living outside the garden, apart from God, in rebellion to him? Lying, boasting, tempting, controlling, domineering. And the answer is found back in verse number 15. The seed of the woman declared to someday crush the adversary becomes the great longing of God's people. It certainly is for Eve in chapter 3. It becomes that way for Seth in chapter 5, for Noah in chapter 9, for Abraham in chapter 12. 59 times throughout Genesis, most of all, most often in genealogies, we find God's people expectantly, hopefully, uh, longingly looking for that seed, that offspring, that snake crusher who will bring an end to the iron grip of sin. And finally, 
on the first Noel, that seed is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Who was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil and to put all enemies under his feet. So that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. 1 John 3, 8, 2 Corinthians 15, 25, and 5, 7. When God did that in Jesus, when he destroyed the works of the devil by way of Christ's death, that veil, remember the veil in the temple that separated men and women from God's presence? And interestingly bore the image of the cherubim, which kept Adam and Eve from returning to God's presence in the garden. That thing was torn in two. Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. The end of religion occurs and this opportunity to personally know our creator and practically enjoy new life in Christ is ushered in. And the beautiful thing is, there's no way that you can be too far gone to enter into a relationship with God through Christ. And that just blew me away time and again as I was working on this sermon over the days and weeks. In fact, so much so that I, I would just jot little notes to myself concerning how impressed I was, either uh, on my study notes or uh, in this notebook that I keep, or I'd key them into my, my computer. And so I, I just pulled them all together one day, and I, I put them in one big list, and here's, here, here they are. This is a permanent solution! Exclamation point. This is the answer that is neither Democrat nor Republican. Hallelujah. This means transformation and not just reformation. This is good news no matter where you've been, with whom you've been, what you've bought, thought, or planned. This good news requires proclamation. Who are you going to tell? The gospel is why we're in business, to know it, to grow in it, to sow it. This is hopeful. Jesus takes the worst cases. Jesus takes the greatest failures. In fact, what's fascinating is the very thing that you think is keeping you from God, like Adam and Eve's banishment from the Garden of Eden, is the very thing that he's using to graciously awake your need for him and draw you to himself. I was reading this past month a bit on uh, John Newton, who lived in the 18th century, rejected his Christian upbringing, ran away to Africa, that I might send my fill, Newton wrote. Yeah, he earned a living by, by trading slaves. And Newton's God-rejecting life was exemplified on one trip. Uh, they're sailing back up to uh, uh, the British Isles, and he breaks in to the ship's liquor cabinet. He passes the booze out to all of his buddies on the boat. Everybody gets sloshed. Newton falls overboard, and the only reason he's rescued is because an officer grabs a harpoon and harpoons Newton and pulls him back up onto the ship. In fact, from that point on, he, he lived with a, a, a scar the size of his fist on his thigh. 
Well, they were returning to Scotland, and uh, as they were approaching Scotland, they were blown off course. And the ship began to take on water. And Newton was ordered to go down into the hold. And it was there that he began pumping water with the slaves for hours on end, even days on end. And at that point, everything became very clear to John Newton. His life, his rejection of his upbringing, and these Bible verses that he had been taught as a boy began filtering back into his head. And he cried out to God for help. And you know what? God met him right there in the hold of that ship. Newton went on, as you probably know, to become a pastor. He became a hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace. He even went on to be a crusader for the abolition of slavery, the very thing to which he was party, the very way by which he made a living. In fact, he was a great encourager of William Wilberforce, whose tireless work brought an end to the slave trade in England. Maybe there's somebody here today that feels like you're in the hold of the ship or you're in jail. Interestingly, Jesus is there to meet you. In fact, he's meeting you in jail to free you from everything that has put you there. The adversary has been put down. The serpent has been crushed. The power of sin and death has been rendered impotent. It's okay to leave. You can step out of step out of that hold. You can step out of the cell. Everything's okay. And if you need help doing that, well, just come on up and see me, or I can point you to someone who can help you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when sin was introduced, uh, the good news of its ultimate destruction was also announced as well, all those years ago. So we pray that you would help us to see through our sin and self-appointed miseries to the graciously liberating work of Christ who crushed our adversary. We pray that you'd help us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Even today, even now, we pray in his name. Amen.